In chapter 10 of Screenwriter Survival Guide, it's the grand finale, and we're breaking down the top six things you can do right now to give you the best chance of thriving in this industry. Things like just keep writing, make lots of industry friends, and make your own indie films. Let's face it, Hollywood is a lot, but for many of us, it's the only life we can imagine. I'm Sam Brooks, and my goal with this podcast is to take not-yet-screenwriters from their first homesick night in Los Angeles all the way to the red carpet. Welcome to Screenwriter Survival Guide. Today on Screenwriter Survival Guide, it's the grand finale of Volume 1. And to celebrate, we're doing something a little bit different. Now, I know everybody doesn't have time to listen to 10 hours of podcast, so we've taken the best advice given out by our fantastic guests from the nine last episodes and boiled them down to the six key tips every screenwriter should follow to not just survive, but thrive in this industry. So without further ado, let's get into it. Tip number one. Just keep writing. We've talked to a lot of different writers on the podcast and heard a lot of different perspectives on how best to go about writing. But what all of them say, regardless of their style or personal preference, is that whatever you do, you just have to keep on writing. My personal bias is that a writer should write every weekday. But if that doesn't work for you, come up with a system that does. Just get the words out somehow and get them with consistency. They don't have to be great every day. They don't even have to be good. I've literally thrown out entire days worth of work because the next day I've just been like, you know, yesterday was an off day and I'm not going to use any of these pages. As Jody Picoult says, you can always edit a bad page. You can't edit a blank page. To give you some inspiration when coming up with your writing style and just to get you going when you're writing, we're going to highlight two different writers' routines. Here's Michael Ross from Chapter 3. I love writing in the morning. Like, I love getting up. And so some backstory that is sort of relevant but not is I was a figure skater growing up. So I skated from the time I was like 11 till I was like 24. So we practice super early and like I would Uh be during college I'd get up at four, drive an hour to the rink to -hmm. practice in the morning. So I think as sort of once I sort of grad school, that was when I finished skating and I was so in a rhythm of getting up at like four 30 or five and starting my day Mm -hmm. that almost all the writing I did during grad school in particular, I would do in the mornings because I was like, I am great from like five to nine and then it burns. And I kind of know that's, Often, even with like, I don't want to say terrible PA jabs because I haven't, I again, like didn't really have a terrible one, which is lucky. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, the hours suck, they're bad. And yeah. my very first industry job job was I was a production office PA on this CBS show called Kane, which you had mentioned. Uh-huh. Um, and those hours are wretched. Like I would, go, you know, I'd mm-hmm. go to work at 10 a.m. on like if our call time was 10, and I'd be at the office till 2 a.m. because we would. Right. We have to print scripts ah, and then ah. I, what happened? Oh, it was just the hours. Yeah. No, just the hours suck. Yeah. I remember 
we so this was just before like ipads and uh-huh. none of the executives were capable of like reading a, a pdf on their <laughs> computers so we have to print scripts every time a new draft came out and then someone would have to print out mapquest directions and go deliver them so uh-huh. i'd be driving around from like midnight to 3 a.m some nights and you know the hours are terrible but like you kind of just carve out your time so a lot of mornings mm-hmm. i would just write from like six to eight before work and it's like you can get a lot done if you write one mm-hmm. hour a morning right steadily and consistently not like oh i did an hour i'm not going to do anything for a week right, but, right so i think that's kind of been my thing and i've also been really protective sometimes of my lunch hours and mm-hmm. i'll like i'll go peel off and work i I have this other thing I do. So switch it. This is jumping ahead a little bit to take us yeah. out of the timeline, <laughs> but switch at birth filmed at a studio like an hour north of LA. So every day I'd have this commute oh, and I started using my phone because I was like, I got to use this time. I'm going to go crazy. And it was like right before mm-hmm. podcasts were really a thing. So I was like, right. I could listen to like another like hour of Britney Spears or I could <laughs> use this time. Mm-hmm. So I started like getting, you know, using voice notes on my phone and I would just start dictating like outline type things or like huh. dictating a scene into my phone. And then I'd like get to work and on my lunch hour, I would like transcribe what I'd done or whatever. Huh. Um, That's interesting. That was amazing because it was like, it almost didn't feel like writing in a good way because it wasn't, there was no pressure. Right. But then like you probably had something more usable than you thought at the end of it. Mm-hmm. That's and a lot great. of times I always, I sort of, sorry, I'm jumping to like, just kind of no, everything, but no. I always say this thing where like, if I'm stuck, I never, I never feel like I have writer's block, but it's not because mm-hmm. I don't get it. It's because I think I have developed some tools to get around it. It doesn't mean the content mm-hmm. is good, but I, one of my things is like, I'll, if I can't figure out how to start something or like, if I'm not feeling motivated, I'll set mm-hmm. a timer on my phone for like, it's always seven or 12 minutes. I don't know why those. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, just write the crappiest version of this huh. for seven minutes. And almost always you're like, okay, I was stuck because the scene needs to go from like A to B, but I put too much in this scene and it's trying to go from A to like F. So I right. need to split these off or I need to start later. Mm-hmm. Like it almost always clarifies what I'm actually blocked on. And I'm rarely blocked on like, wanting to write i'm blocked on like something logistical about what i'm trying to write and here's beecher running from chapter nine figure out how your brain works (laughs) there are uh paul thomas anderson i am just in awe at the way he writes he will go and sit down and write 500 plus words no outline no real idea of where the story's going. And then he goes back through and just cuts out all the things he doesn't like. So if you ever watch mm-hmm. Boogie Nights or The Master or uh, There Will Be Blood, which I love, if you ever thought, man, this feels a little disjointed. Yeah, well, his okay. writing process is write out everything. Just see where the characters go and then cut everything you don't like. I would I would drown if I tried that. If someone said, oh, you've been writing six years, go try that. I would I would be horrible. I am very much an outline person because it works for me, but I have, I have friends that... that go at it a different way. So I think mm-hmm. figuring out how your brain works, because the reality is if you, if someone wants to be a writer, they probably don't have a shortage of ideas. Occasionally mm-hmm. a lot of people reach out and they're like, Oh, I've got this great idea. It's going to win an Academy award. Do you want to write it? I'm like, I, I don't have 
a shortage of ideas. That's that's not that's not the issue. Um, it's the translating those ideas into paper in a way that makes sense and communicates clearly. And that's the yeah. thing that that I try to encourage people. I'm like, it's not a one. It's not one way. This is how you do it. It's every brain's different. And right. and try to figure out how to translate that. And on a deeper level, uh, figure yourself out emotionally because every screenplay I write has a big piece of me in it. Um, and mm. so usually something I'm working through at that time, even if I don't recognize it, I'll recognize it later. And so right. I'm a big fan of seeing a therapist or seeing a counselor, mm. help you work through the stuff that, yeah. that, that you are experiencing in your life. Try to make some sense of it because if you can, if you can start to understand how you work, you can start to put real humanity in your scripts. And if you're able to do that, then once again, it's all just kind of figuring out, how each writer works because if you can unlock right. that and you can figure out things that motivate you figure out what moves you emotionally and figures out you know the blocks that your brain runs into then you're going to be successful um and so that's that's my very kind of three category three pronged answer to that question <laughs> remember guys never stop writing you can write yourself out of any hole as long as you actually sit down and do the work which brings us to Tip number two, but don't just write. I'm going to get super honest with you guys for a minute. If you follow me on Instagram, at Presents, go follow, wink, wink, you know I've been struggling with some serious burnout recently, which has honestly made it difficult for me to keep producing this podcast. Because if I can't figure out how to take my own advice, how can I sit here and give advice to others? So that's just a quick aside to say this is a tip I'm still working on following myself, but it's still really good advice given to me by other people, and it's really, really important. It's vital. You cannot be a great writer if you spend all your time in front of final draft. You have to be willing to take a step back. You have to listen to what your body is telling you. In the words of my favorite yoga coach, Travis Elliott, you have to learn to bend so you never break. This is important for two reasons. First of all, writers need to experience the world in order to reflect it accurately in our writing. Secondly, as I can personally attest, when you bang your head against a brick wall day in and day out, and the brick wall is the keyboard, and you never take your foot off the brake, you can't possibly have fun doing what you're doing. And remember, if you're not going to have fun in your career, then why are you a screenwriter? If you want to have a life outside of your career, and you, you're not interested in having fun while you're at work, that is absolutely fine. It's not my personal choice, but it's absolutely fine. But you have a much higher chance of succeeding and actually making a lot of money if you're a lawyer or an accountant or a doctor. You should have fun if you're going to become a screenwriter. Now, by taking time away from the keyboard, you let the light in and you actually allow yourself the time to fall back in love with your craft. That's what's so beautiful about it. I'm going to highlight three guests in this tip. First up, to talk about sidestepping the pressure to perform, here's director Laura Modica from Chapter 2. 
and I feel like you're always writing or you're always mm-hmm. working on something and I feel like that is amazing but don't feel bad if you don't do that because mm-hmm. I don't do that <laughs> so I just want to let the people know that if you're not constantly doing that obviously if you want to be a screenwriter um I would do that. I would definitely try and write as much as you can, but don't put too much pressure on yourself about it. Like I, I love writing, but I'm not, I'm not the kind of person that just like can make myself work it. Like I'll just, I don't know. I'm a little bit, I feel like erratic my work, but if I'm like, I'm, if I'm not fully in it, I'm, I'm not, you know, like I'm kind of just not in it at all. So for me, but my, my real passion, I mean, I love writing, but my real passion is directing. Mm -hmm. So for me, what I want to be going out, you know, I want to be going out and, you know, directing short mm-hmm. films, which is a lot harder right. than just sitting in your room and writing. Yeah, absolutely. But if you can get people to do that with you, yeah. do it. On a similar note, here's sound editor Quincy Lavrie from Chapter 5. If it's possible, you know, put your mental health, mm-hmm. um, as priority, mm-hmm. you know, if you need to take a break, if you need to take a downtime, mm-hmm. and if you have that, like, for me, my people here in LA that you know my supports, um, goal to have like some like beach day, picnic day, yeah, you know, with your people here, or just by yourself, go to the beach, read a book, mm-hmm. go to the garden, go to the park, or just wander around. I I do still like do stuff um Mm -hmm. like la stuff by myself that's still like nice um just know when you do need that time and just you know acknowledge it and just like do it not just push yourself and it is hard to like you know do your stuff like everything here in la job and everything Mm -hmm. and sometimes people forget about their mental health and that they need some downtime and relax Mm -hmm. and take a break i think that's as important and talking about how living your life actually makes you a better writer. Here's Michael Ross again from Chapter 3. Don't come into a writer's room and go, and I, I have harped on this a bit, but like, don't just go. If somebody says, what'd you do all weekend? I wrote for 36 hours is kind of a boring answer. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, I went on a bad date. I went on, I planned this camping trip and we did this and I made this dinner because I love cooking and I follow this person and I fucked up this recipe. Like <laughs> live an interesting life and then connect with people over both of your different but interesting lives. And I think that is, that is as useful as writing eight hours a day. You also need to write, but I think that is, I, I have gotten work because I've, I think connected with people who then trusted that my point of view also is reflected in my writing. And hopefully my mm-hmm. like writing samples have also shown that, but mm-hmm. like that is, I think something that's not, not understood or conveyed enough. Like just be mm-hmm. an interesting person. Who's not only, Hey, he's a great writer. She's a great writer, but like mm-hmm. she's going to come into a writer's room every day and be like, Ooh, I had this experience and maybe we could use it or, Here's a perspective right. you might not have had. That is, that's as much your currency as your mm-hmm. three great specs rights. This is so incredibly important, guys, and it is so easy to ignore. Until suddenly, you can't ignore it anymore. And trust me, you will reach a point if you just write, if you burn out where you no longer can do it.
But for now, let's move on to tip number three, move to LA. For this tip, I'm actually going to start by sharing with you something I said in chapter one. So let's kind of dive into making the decision to come out. Um, the most the most important question, do I have to move to LA? Uh, if you've listened to any other podcast, read any other books, even like Yahoo answered uh, someone about screenwriting, um, you have probably come across people saying you have to move to LA to be a screenwriter. Um, now, I really wish I could start off this podcast by being like, by giving you my hot take and being like, here's why they're all wrong. But alas... That is not the case. Uh, everyone who says you have to move out to L.A. Uh, to become a screenwriter is right. You do. Um, there are some jobs in screenwriting outside of Los Angeles. Uh, they are very rare, and it is highly, highly unlikely that you are going to not move out to L.A., somehow manage to get an agent, somehow manage to get one of those jobs, and then move uh, – and then get one of those jobs and never have to move to L.A. Is it possible? Yes. And there are stories of people who do it, but we're not talking about, uh, you know, unicorn, uh, unicorns here. We're talking about uh, what is going to make you – put you in the best position to actually come out and succeed in Hollywood uh, as a screenwriter. And honestly, the best thing you can do for yourself, the, the way that's going to give you uh, the best chance is going to be by coming out to L.A. Now, that's all fine and great. Everything I said above still makes sense. But as you'll know, if you've listened to chapter nine with Beecher Renning, it's possible to build a successful writing career outside of LA. And if this is the path you want to take, I urge you to go back and listen to Beecher's full chapter on Screenwriter Survival Guide. The link to their episode will be in the show notes. It will really make a difference for you. But for now, here's a quick taste of what they said. It was, it was tough. I mean, I went to, so I graduated from undergrad, moved to Virginia beach and got my master's of fine arts in cinema, television directing. And mm -hmm. I've got, I've got thoughts on grad school. I think if you very, very short, if you can get it paid for, I think it's a great opportunity to go use mm -hmm. equipment. Um, I was there on a full scholarship. So I took that opportunity gotcha. as opposed to moving to, to LA or Atlanta. I was like, I get equipment. I get to learn from uh, this craft even more. Um, and so I took that opportunity, went to, to, uh, Virginia beach and, and went to school out there. And, mm -hmm. um, I was out there for, for four years, met my wife out there. We were, as I was approaching graduation, I'm like, okay, like, do we make the jump? Move to LA. I had a lot of friends in grad school that made the jump and moved to LA. I had other friends that went to Atlanta. I have other friends that went to New York. Um, mm -hmm. and one of the, the, the biggest things for me is that I, I kind of had to figure out why do I want to create films and why do I want to write? Mm -hmm. And it wasn't the industry necessarily that, mm -hmm. that, that drew me to it. It wasn't about the industry for me. It was, I, I just like to create. And I realized that I, was, I had graduated uh, with my graduate degree. I did not have a feature script that I really liked or really felt like could get noticed. And I felt like, well, gosh, I could move to LA right now and have all the connections in the world but I don't have anything that I feel confident enough to make. That would be something mm -hmm. that I'm really proud of. And that I think um, could, could really do well. And so my wife and I, cause I got married when I was out there. Um, we found out we were pregnant with our first daughter and I was like, I need time. I need stability. 
with with having a kid and we have two daughters mm. now and we're now done having kids but we have two daughters now <laughs> um and i was like i need stability um and a paycheck but also and this is a huge part of my decision i i needed time to be able to write and become a better writer so when i moved to tennessee i moved back to tennessee from virginia in 2000 mm. in 2016 and at that point, I told my wife, I was like, I'm going to write five feature screenplays that I'm really proud of over the course of the next five years. And so mm. that's while having kids, that's while teaching full time. But I carved out eight hours a week into my schedule. That is my writing time. Like, this is my gotcha. writing time. I make it work. And and I will say work teaching on faculty. You have a flexible schedule. Your mm. your your bosses actually encourage you to pursue professional development which for me is, is making films more for right. me, it's writing. And so I would literally tell my boss like, Oh no, like I'm going to be writing during that time. And so it's not something that they roll their eyes and, and like, why are you doing that? They want you to be, be learning. And so faculty yeah. being on faculty works well for that. So mm. I spent the last five years in, and I was six months late. I turned 30. That was when I was wanting to go during the pandemic, the beginning of the pandemic <laughs> and, and right around Christmas of the pandemic, uh, about six months later is when I got my fifth feature screenplay that I was like, I could hand this to somebody and gotcha. not have to give clauses of, oh, it's a first draft or it's just an idea right. or it's an outline. Like it's there. Like I've got ones that I think gotcha. are a lot better than others. But congrats, I, congrats on that. Still pretty you. recent. Congrats. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, that was. Yes. So um, for me, it was the opportunity for the stability aspect of the family, but also that I would have a job where. I would actually have time to write and become a better writer. And I took that really seriously. And it was, it was, it's actually a little easier now to talk about it. Cause you know, I've got screenplays that are doing some things and getting out right. there, but it was hard for the first couple of years. Cause I have so many friends went to LA or Atlanta and they kept calling me being like, Oh yeah, I'm working with this producer. I'm working with this showrunner. I'm working with this. I'm working with this. They're like, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, I'm writing a lot. Yeah. <laughs> like, What are you writing? I'm like, it's still not very good. Yeah. But I'm writing a lot. And so, yeah, you know, it was, it was tough to stay on that path, but I just kept believing. I was like, no, like that just the way I thought about it. I'm like, if I write eight hours a week for five years, I'm going to become a better writer. Like it mm. has to happen. I can't like right. just the, how anything goes. And so mm -hmm. I stuck to it. And now I'm finally to the point where some several things are, are hitting on some f bigger festivals mm. and I'm now shopping around one of the scripts and trying to make it. Before we move on to the next tip, however, I will say this with respect to Beecher. If you want to give yourself the absolute best chance of succeeding in this industry, LA is, without a doubt, your best option. Now, it is absolutely possible to craft a career in this industry without moving here, but your chances are lower. Much, much lower. But if you're passionate about living somewhere other than Los Angeles, which I completely understand, all the power to you. Know your bright lines, what you want out of your life. Like I said above, if you're not having fun, what is the point? But just know you will have to work harder to thrive. Much harder. Tip number four. Make things. If you're a screenwriter, writing is the most important thing you can do to thrive in this industry. And yes, I'm repeating myself there. It's deja vu. You're not in the matrix. And if you're only going to listen to one of the tips I've given out today, absolutely listen to that one. But 
And here's the big but. Hollywood is incredibly competitive. And with streaming shows running shorter and shorter seasons and smaller rooms, starter jobs are much more difficult to come by even though there are more shows in development. I say all this not to be depressing, but to clarify that those who thrive often find their own way into the business. Screenwriter C. Robert Cargill put it like this, and I'm paraphrasing here. Hollywood is like a Gatsby party. You either have an invite because of your family, or you can wait in the line, or you can run around the side of the house, climb a fence, break a window, bribe the cook, whatever you can to get in. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't work your way towards an assistant job. I'm not saying you shouldn't jump on the chance to become a writer's assistant. You absolutely should try all that, and if you get one of those opportunities, amazing, do it immediately. But what I am saying is that you're much more likely to thrive if you make your own projects on the side. Spend some time, it doesn't have to be a lot, every month, every year, working on your own projects with a plan to actually release them, and that is the key. Actually make projects you want to release, not scripts that are just going to sit there forever. That is just writing, and it's great, but it's writing. I'm not a director. I hate directing. But I'm planning on directing a micro-budget feature next year because, frankly, nobody else will, and I want to get this idea out there. Whether you're making a short film, a web series, or even, yes, a podcast, making your own content is the most surefire way to help you truly thrive in this business. To illustrate that, I want to play you a clip from Chapter 8 with director-producer Axel Arzola, where he brings up the concept of developing huge projects for the long term while making smaller projects happen in the short term. And I think this was a brilliant idea. It was just he was putting into words something I've wanted to do for a long time. I am doing, um, but I've never really had the words like this to, to put it uh, into context like that. So take a listen. This is great. Depending on the type of writing that you do, I understand that there's some things like, for example, the project that you and I are working on. Mm-hmm. There's no way we can go out and shoot that. And that's what I wish we could do, but right. we can't because the world that you have created and the characters and the situations, that show would require 50 to $70 million to do right. one season. So mm-hmm. that is one project that I understand that. And I'm, I'm looking at that project and saying, okay, for the next five years, I'm going to keep pushing that project because if mm-hmm. it happens, it will completely change my career and Sam's, Sam's right. career. And at the same time, I need to find little projects that I can Mm -hmm. figure out a way to go and shoot for less money. So I I just wanted to say that because I'm not in the camp of do it yourself forever and go indie and only make indie movies. I'm not interested in only making that type of movie. Right. Right. I want to make them. I want to encourage people who want to make them. And I don't think there's anything wrong with it, but if you really want to grow in your career in Hollywood, and Mm -hmm. I think that's the point of anyone listening to this podcast you need to understand both sides. You need to figure out how do you get things made to get attention and also work on those big ambitious projects that would require HBO to drop 50 mil on your project to get made because you create one to be able to do the other. It's like this cycle or circle. 
where you are creating content that you can produce yourself with your friends so you get the attention so when the studio comes over you have big projects that you can sell them and then once you have those big projects that you can sell them you're going to have the money to then go back to those little passion projects that you want to do with your friends and be able to afford the time and money to make those which is i think it's a beautiful uh, thing when it happens and i also want you to hear from indie filmmaker timur bootsin on chapter six about how he made his first film as a teenager using a cast and crew of adult professionals by the way that film hermanos now has over 18 million views on youtube That's a great question, Sam. I think um, one of the things is the passion. Like, I, I never wavered or questioned myself at all. Like, I wasn't like, am I doing the right? I didn't get in my head at all. I was just mm-hmm. so focused on, and this film needs to get made. This is what I want to tell. And I think a big part of that was just my passion conveying to everyone else and understanding the story I wanted mm-hmm. to put across and them seeing how motivated and passionate I was about telling this story. That, you know, mm-hmm. when you see someone that passionate, you're not going to be like, you know, hey, kid, what are you trying to do? And, you know, so I, I, I don't think my confidence ever wavered because I was mm-hmm. so confident about, you know, what I wanted to do. And, you know, my passion was there. And I think that's the big thing. The passion was there. And, you know, the famous saying is like, you know, I, I treat treat people with respect and you'll get respect back. And I think mm-hmm. a big thing on my set on any sets and future sets is treating everybody with the same amount of respect regardless of Mm -hmm. the position and i think at the end of the day if you give respect you'll get respect and i think that's kind of how that how that went about for hermanos and some of the other projects tip five get friendly industry friends are worth their weight in gold Not only will making friends help you to feel more alive and happy in your everyday life, but they can also be invaluable to your career. Connecting with people in a real, genuine way is your best tool for having both a fulfilling life while you work towards your dream of becoming a screenwriter, and the best way to help you build your network full of strong, healthy connections. To talk about this, here's Michael Ross from Chapter 3 one more time, to talk about making meaningful connections. Form relationships. I think mm-hmm. writers are introverts. And I, mm-hmm. oh, by and large, I am, I'm very much an introvert, even though I'm also mm-hmm. very like loud. But <laughs> I think there's a misconception that you can sit at your computer and write and that is enough. And unfortunately, it's also a business. And it's a mm-hmm. business that is very sort of informal and not, not businessy, especially right. on like our creative side of it. And I think there's a misconception that you can just, if you write something good enough, it will just mm-hmm. be found. And right. anyone who that is true for, God bless you. Like mm-hmm. that's my dream in a way. It's not really that true. Right. Make like form actual relationships. Like if you're if you're lucky enough to be on a set or in a writer's room, talk to people and don't just talk to them sort of about like, I love your work or I love this thing you did or whatever. Like form a human relationship. That is how I've gotten almost every job in my career. 
is people, I, me managing to connect with people over shared interests or stuff we enjoyed watching or stuff we hated watching or our families or our pets or like, but be a human being with stories to tell. And that is like inherently appealing to people. Mm -hmm. And here's another great way I found to make connections. Find people who want to work on a project with you. Not only does that help you create lasting friendships and business connections, but it also helps you crew up your movie like we talked about in tip number four. To talk about this, here's Johnny Santana, a director, from chapter four. The first thing I would say is that I also had crippling social anxiety up until I was 16, 17, up until I made uh, the first movie that, would, that shall not be named. I was incredibly nervous. I couldn't look people in the eyes. Um, mm. uh, the first resource that helped out with that was actually making something. Um, I got a lot of confidence from the fact that I made something and it played at a, at a at a, at, a, at a theater you don't have to play at a theater per se but the fact that i had a screening and i made something gave me a lot of confidence because people because uh, it showed me that people were very supportive and 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 uh no matter what one of the i think basic values that human beings celebrate is someone chasing their dreams and mm -hmm. i realized that uh, if i was ever nervous socially there was no reason to be because my mission was to chase my dreams and most people like people that chase their dreams mm -hmm. so um that kind of gave me confidence and melted away some nervousness. And then also I just started actually researching social skills. Like, uh, okay. I'm sure, I'm sure, I mean, uh, to anybody that hasn't heard of the very popular YouTube channel or book, um, should look into it. Charisma on command. I, uh, after I, I read that stuff and, and watched those videos for a few months and I was a completely different person on the other end. And it's cool. Cause I'm actually friends now with, with Ben and, and Charlie who run it, which is a full, um so like yeah i was gonna mention that talk about like insane networking you went from like watching their videos like in your bedroom to like being friends with them <laughs> yeah well i hope they call me friends um i i call them friends um yeah yeah we're, yeah for sure. it's always the most awkward you're like oh it's the other <laughs> can i gone... say that or do i sound like i'm like mujin i don't know <laughs> we, we, we've gone surfing a few times and hung out and yeah, you know okay. talk, so yeah um uh but um uh, but yeah, so I, I would say like the first step is actually research social skills and, and leadership skills. Like there's there's so many books and online videos on how to do it. Um, the the biggest myth you can tell yourself is that you're just shy and going to be shy forever. Um, mm -hmm. I was like I was the most shy. I was the shyest person you could ever think of. Um, mm -hmm. And after only a year of really trying hard not to be, um, I, I I officially clicked over to being someone who loves human interaction. Like now I feel. Uh, more uncomfortable if I'm not talking to somebody than if there's silence. Making friends is tough, especially for many of us introverted screenwriter types. So here's Beecher Renning from chapter nine again to talk about finding your inner extrovert. Uh, I think at the festival, I, I, I had a friend, I'll say this, I had a friend that I went out to, to Sundance with years ago. We were just attending and he's just the most extroverted person you can imagine. And he mm -hmm. came back with like a Rolodex of contacts because he would just strike up conversations. And if, if I would recommend if you're going to an event, even though most a lot of writers are introverted, I would say I'm probably extroverted, but nowhere near where my friend mm -hmm. was. Um, right. I, I, you know, if you can, if you can just 
find your extroverted self, even if you're faking it, <laughs> just just to kind of put yourself out there because networking is is the thing that right. I've seen I've seen the uh, the most come from. And it's not always networking too, like a, oh they can give me something. It's also just mm -hmm. like a, okay great I'm connecting with a creative, and yeah and, and yeah and that's and that's. That. And, and I will say, and this is this is not really your question, but it's something that I think is interesting. <laughs> no, go for um, it. Is you never know what connections and what people that you interact with are the ones that are going to make it. Um, I, you know, I have friends that once again went to grad school with. They've been in LA for five, six years. I have friends that I, I have people that are very film oriented that went out there and are very driven and career mm -hmm. first oriented, and they're doing cool stuff, but. Mm -hmm. I was in undergrad. I took a class called technical writing because I got a writing minor, as I'd mentioned earlier. And it was the only creative writing class. They were only non-creative writing class that I had to take. So I'm in this class <laughs> with a bunch of English majors. And for my final project, I'm put on a team with two guys. And one of the guys, um, I'll, I'll just say his first name. His name's Josh. And I was on a team <laughs> with him. And we were friends and we were nice. And he thought film was cool. And he was yeah. an English major and a year behind me and we didn't think much of it. And then we yeah. loose, loosely stayed in touch over the next, what, 10 years. Right. I mean, loosely. I just saw on Facebook the other day, well, this is a few months ago, where he is the director of development at a major studio in Hollywood. <laughs> like multi-million dollar films, three wow. multi-million dollar films coming out every year. And literally like in the Hollywood, um, whatever, magazine uh, article I read it like listed the two producers that are like the founding producers of the studio and then immediately <laughs> mentioned yeah. Josh Josh and I'm like this this English major <laughs> at this small school in Tennessee yeah. is the one that now and so we I've been in touch you see my pitch deck we're having conversations I have yeah. no idea if it'll go anywhere but he's given me really good advice so in the least he's just he's so connected and I would have never in a million years picked the guy I was teamed up with in technical writing. Right. Be, be the guy that is hands down the most successful in the industry out of everyone I know. I know in 2021, fake it till you make it gets a bad rap. But sometimes it really is the best solution. Especially when the alternative is, well, wait till you feel like it. Because here's the kicker. If you don't feel like it now, chances are you never will. So with that in mind, let's move on to our final tip. Tip number six, find an agent or a manager or both. You may think, yeah, duh. This may seem obvious to many of you. If you're like me, you've spent hours and hours trying to find an agent or a manager and you feel like your hard work might never pay off. Which is why I'm putting this as my sixth and final tip. Not because it's the most important, it almost certainly is the least important in the long run, but because it's the biggest question most new writers have. In fact, chapter seven, the chapter I'm going to share clips from here, has the most listens of any episode in volume one. Because all writers have this question. So here to answer that question is literary manager Quincy Lee from chapter seven, talking about how to find an agent or manager. I don't think there's a right answer per se, because everyone is so um, different from each other. I will say, I think when reps are most able to service you is 
probably if you work want to work in TV after your first staffing job, you know, where you have mm -hmm. a little bit of momentum, but obviously you need somebody to get you to the next level. Um, mm -hmm. Or on the feature side, I would say once you have just an amazing feature spec that you feel like you can sell the market or is getting some attention on, you know, whether it be the blacklist or something or similar gotcha. competitions of sorts. I think that's sort of when reps are, you know, can be most activated in your career mm -hmm. early. Uh, but there's really no right answer. You know, I represent people who've never been staffed or have never sold a feature. I represent mm -hmm. people who, you know, are obviously well into those careers too. Um, so there's no right answer per se. Um, but I think the most important thing you can do is, is find a rep who is passionate about you, you know? And mm -hmm. um, I would not sign with a rep just to have a rep, you know? I don't think that right. ends up helping you, especially on the management end where, you know, obviously in managers, we don't try to poach clients from other managers. If, if mm -hmm. people managers, you know, they're very, we're very hands-off. Obviously we don't mm -hmm. um, consider those clients because, you know, that's just how, sort of how managers work. So if you have a manager you don't love, um, you're not going to get attention from other managers, you know, because they, they know you have a manager. Right. So, so I think right. it's about no, just finding who's most passionate about you and, and, um, and yeah. the, that, you know, passion always wins out. I service you. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like definitely the relationship is key there and develop, like, I mean, honestly, it's with anything like, and that seems to be the punchline. People listening to this are probably sick of me saying this because I, it seems to be the punchline of every episode I do is like, Oh, it comes down to the relationships. Um, yeah. But it really does seem to be key. Like, I don't think you're not going to have a good relationship with your agent or manager if you, you know, if you just find the first one that agrees to say yes and direct yeah. you. Um, yes, I think that's totally right. And I think especially for writers of color, you know, obviously that's a big mm -hmm. focus for me and, and something I care a lot about. But I yeah. think a lot of times, those people just because they don't know as many people um, who work in the industry to begin with, right? I think a lot of those writers clom mm -hmm. on to the first person to show interest in them. And, and that um, is a bummer because then you could be missing out on some other people, you know, versus, right. you know, I think traditionally, obviously, um, you know, writers who are white, you know, probably have friends or family working in the industry, right? And sort of can get insider mm -hmm. access to, you know, some of the larger agencies or management companies. And so just, uh, you know, for, for those writers in particular, I think um, it, the advice is especially pertinent for them. Right. I mean, I think the other thing with that is you can, you can imagine a lot of, or not a lot, most, most representatives are amazing people, not trying to say that, but I think there's certainly some people who probably will try to just to check a box and say, look, I have all these diverse writers. So they don't really care totally. about you either. And they just want to show their diverse roster that they're not all hiring uh, straight white guys. Yeah, a hundred percent. So um, where are you, how does, you touched on this a little bit earlier. Where are you finding most of your clients? Are these through, are, are people coming to you? Are you reaching out and looking for talent? How is, is it 50-50? How's the split of that look like? Uh, yeah, no, it's always a mix. Um, I would say, obviously, a lot of people are incoming from whether it be friends in the industry, yeah. other writers, clients, um, other representatives, you know, agents and lawyers and that sort, um, mm -hmm. or, or executives, you know, a lot of it, if it's incoming, it's from one of those sources. Um, and then in terms of, but I also try to, I think, be active in, in terms of just keeping my eyes out on people, you know, 
mm-hmm. writers I love, um, writers who've worked on cool things, or, you know, if I love a movie or love a show, you know, who, who are people who are writing on those shows, gotcha. or just voices. I, I'm always on Twitter, and I think there are people I love following on Twitter, right, mm-hmm. and that usually translates to um i've seen a lot of those twitter followers grow into (laughs) yeah i've seen a lot of twitter followers grow into like and karen g and they're two of my favorite twitter follows and they're like very successful uh you know writers in the industry now which is awesome um so so sometimes you know it is it is i try to do outreach especially like i said because i think underrepresented communities those Mm -hmm. using aren't the people that get sent to you from other people in the industry those are people you have to go out and find Mm -hmm. um so it is a mix but i would say for people out there wondering how to be connected to a rep um a lot of it is through referral that's usually the best way in um not just because we're busy and we can't obviously read every script that comes our way but also for legal reasons you know you you want to be protected and and um we don't accept you know unsolicited submissions um Mm -hmm. i would say the industry is in general but but most companies don't um, or you have to sign some sort of uh waiver before you submit something unsolicited just because um you know you don't want to open yourself up to any lawsuits or anything like that if, if you're just accepting material from anybody This process takes time. Please don't get discouraged. On a long enough timeline, however, it will work out. And once it does, you've got to create a strong, meaningful relationship with your reps. Here's Quincy again on how to do that. You know what's funny? When I was assistant, I was like, I know which clients are great because they send me Christmas presents. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I would say not to put not that you have to look especially when you're a young writer you don't have the money to send everyone presents especially your reps assistants right. um, but I think acknowledging and having gratitude for people who are you know mm-hmm. working on your behalf every single day that's amazing and that trickles down to the assistants who do so much work you know and are very underappreciated and I think mm-hmm. Also for writers, you know, the writer, our agents and managers assistants are future reps of the next day and they all talk to each mm-hmm. other. And if they're not future reps, they're future execs or they're future writers, right? right? And so it's it's a very small industry and everyone mm-hmm. really has long memories, right? And I think, <laughs> um, yeah. and I think like I remember the clients who told me thank you or the clients who sent me cards or the clients who did get me presents, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, that's just an indication that you have gratitude for people in your life, right? So I think right. the number one way to be a good client is to just show appreciation when when merited, you know, obviously, you know, you don't have to say thank you every day, but like, I think, right. you know, acknowledging the work that other people have done on your behalf, that's, that's always extremely appreciated, whether it's just an email or text or, you know, mm-hmm. over the phone. Um, but I would say, you know, having gratitude is always number one. And I would say the other thing you can do is just just be responsive. You know, I, I think mm-hmm. clients, you really have to chase down and sort of you have to call eight times to get a hold of them. Like that is, right. um, <laughs> you know, like that that's just makes it yeah. hard for everyone. But I yeah. think you know, just being present and responsive. Um, and, and yeah, the other stuff I said earlier, continuing to write, continuing to generate ideas. Um, you know, all of that's really good. But I think um, mm-hmm. to be a good client, you just have to like be a good person. And also, you right. know. <laughs> um, yeah. And like I said, be very, yeah, just be responsive and, and, you know, I think, um, be engaged. Like that's mm-hmm. sort of the juxtaposition. of it. And also I would say if you're a client, you know, like you can all, you can always call your reps and if, if you, there's a good relationship there, like you shouldn't be afraid to call them either or to send them mm-hmm. an email first. You know, I think sometimes when writers are, are younger or, or just starting that relationship, they're like, they always feel like they have to 
wait for the reps to call them, you know, or sort of, right. you know, let them take the lead on that. But I think a really good relationship goes both ways. You know, you should always mm-hmm. feel like you can pick up the phone and, and talk to your reps. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, yeah, so I think just having the relationship really be a two-way street in all senses, um, you know, nice. that's sort of how you be a good client. Right. So treating people like people. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, exactly. You know, yeah, I didn't need to say all that. That was a great summary. So, yeah. All right, guys. Those are the six most important things to keep in mind when you're working your way up as a screenwriter. Just to recap, they are one, write. Two, but don't just write. Three, move to LA. Four, make things. Five, get friendly. Six, find an agent or a manager or both. Do you have anything else you think should be added to the list? Uh, Please shoot me an email. We're about to get into the where can you find me online section. So please send me an email. Let me know what I've missed. Um, Like I've said all along, I am still learning with you guys. I am still working my way up, so there's a big chance that I could have missed something important. But from all of the advice we've gotten throughout the last nine chapters, these seem like the six most important things we should all keep in mind as we move forward. Okay, this is the part of the podcast, before I ask my last question, where I usually ask the guest where we can find them online. I'm going to assume you already know how to reach me, but in case you don't, I'm at Sam Brooks Presents on Insta. My email is sam at sambrooksfilm.com, and my website is, any guesses? That's right, sambrooksfilm.com. But I also want to take this time to talk about the Screenwriter Survival Guide feed moving forward. I've got an exciting new season in the works, although I can't share much about it right now. Other than to say we're going really deep on the indie filmmaking process from the point of view of the screenwriter. Follow the podcast so you can get updated when it comes out. In the meantime, you may have noticed last week we surprise dropped a special episode in the feed with director Kylie Eaton. This is for our new Spotlight On series that I'm hoping to keep doing moving forward, which will spotlight indie directors, writers, and other filmmakers to really dig deep on what makes them tick. I've also got a couple of really exciting one-off episodes in the works that I would tell you about, but I don't want to jinx them, so shush right now. So, make sure to follow the feed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts that also allows you to follow. There's tons of cool stuff coming your way. Alright, on to my final question, or not really a question since I'm asking myself. If you've listened to the podcast before, you know that this is my screenwriter survival tip. Basically, what's the one thing I'd tell a young screenwriter to help them not only survive, but thrive in this industry? On chapter one, when I was talking about moving to LA, I said the most important thing you could do to not only survive, but thrive in this industry was to just keep writing. And that is true. I think I've been very clear about that uh, throughout this episode. And that is still the most important thing you could do. But since I've already said that, I'm going to say this is one other thing that has really gotten on my nerves, and I think everyone needs to stop. Don't call yourself an aspiring screenwriter. I think those are the worst words you can call yourself. I mean, not the worst, but they're they're close to it. Aspiring screenwriter means you're not a screenwriter. 
Now, I understand the urge. You want to say you're a, you, you want to be a screenwriter. So if you, if you want to say that, you can say, I'm an aspiring paid screenwriter. But if you're writing a script, if you've written a script, if you're actively writing, if you have written in the past, you are a screenwriter. That's how it works. You may not be a paid screenwriter. I tend to use the word not yet screenwriter as well. Now, why is this? To me, the term aspiring screenwriter puts you in a place where you're coming with your hands uh, outstretched. You're, you're pleading for something. You're begging for something. And I just don't think that's a very helpful way to approach this industry at all. First of all, if you're in a bar or if you're uh, at your job, you're talking to producers and you say, yeah, I'm an aspiring screenwriter. They're immediately going to look at you like, oh, God, I don't want to deal with this person. Another person's going to try to pitch me a script or get me a job. If you say, I'm a writer, they might say that. They might, they might act that way. But there's also a chance they say, oh, there's a writer up here in the industry, someone I can talk to about stuff. But the biggest thing is for your mental and emotional well-being. When I stopped calling myself an, an aspiring screenwriter and saying I want to be a screenwriter and instead started calling myself a screenwriter, it changed the way I saw the business. It changed the way I saw myself. I stopped looking at each script as this is a sample, a sample to just throw away in the drawer and started to look at, okay, who can I attach to this? How can I push this forward? And yes, it's true. I do not have any uh, studio-funded films. I don't have a staff job on a, on a TV show at the moment. But since I've made this switch, I'm developing a scripted podcast that is probably going to go into production next year. I have a film that is definitely going into production next year. I'm directing my own film next year. And I've already got a bunch of other small projects that I've released online. You can check them out at sambrooksfilm.com. But that's the important thing. The moment I made that switch in my head, I'm like, I am no longer an aspiring screenwriter. I'm a screenwriter. It made me start to look for ways to validate that idea in my head. But if you're not comfortable yet saying you're a screenwriter, if you feel like that's dorky, if you feel like you don't want to be that person who claims to be a screenwriter when they're not a paid screenwriter... First of all, I think you should. I think you should get used to calling yourself that. I get anxious about stuff like that. I was talking to some people on a flight once and I called myself a screenwriter and I just felt like they were judging me when I was like, oh, but you haven't seen me from anything. You haven't, you haven't seen my name in any credits. Um, but it's a good exercise and it's a good way to get you thinking about your career in a different way. But if you're not ready for that yet, call yourself a not yet screenwriter. Aspiring places the caveat that it may not happen, that you may not get there. And it's true, you may not get there, people. I, I get that that is a reality of the business. I don't think that's a very helpful reality to tell yourself. And I think there's going to be some voice in your head telling you that enough. So to take your logical voice and also tell yourself you might not get there, I don't think that's, that's productive in any way. But calling yourself aspiring is another way to say, oh, uh, maybe, maybe. It, it, it's passing the bucket, saying I don't if it doesn't happen, it's fine. I don't claim to be a screenwriter, so if I don't get a job, it's fine. I don't need to feel bad about myself. Calling yourself a not-yet-screenwriter tells you that you will in future be a screenwriter. So, I know it may seem like semantics. It may seem dumb. It may seem like, why is he telling us this? This is a really stupid thing to focus on. But when I started calling myself a screenwriter and not an aspiring screenwriter, it changed my relationship to my career. Okay, everybody, 
I really hope you enjoyed listening to this season as much as I enjoyed putting it together. If you haven't listened to every chapter, please go back and listen through the full season. You can find the entire Volume 1 online wherever you get your podcasts, or you can listen at our website with all the show notes there at screenwritersurvivalguide.com. And if you liked the show, guys, I would really appreciate it if you would leave us a rate and review, give us a follow. That really means a lot, and it is the best way to help us grow this guide. I'm so happy you've gone on this journey with us. And until next time, don't just survive, thrive. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. If you have questions about this episode, you can reach out on Twitter or Instagram. We're at SSGpod. And I'm on Instagram at Sam Brooks Presents. And don't forget to tune in next time to the Screenwriter Survival Guide.